It's good to see you this morning. That's normally the time when I run off the stage to the bathroom, so now we're in trouble. <laughs> but anyway, I thought they were just playing that. Stephanie's going, you're supposed to sing it. I said, oh, okay. So that's what you get. Go to the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter number 1. So glad you're here today. We're excited to be launching out into this new series in the book of Romans. Um, I mean, it's, it's got some stuff. I've really got a, I've got, it's, you're going to learn this as we go, but Romans will, will teach you as we go through the book uh, the, the exact reason why I often say don't ever take a passage out of context. There are places in Romans that you could just go and, and snag it uh, and, and try to get it to stand on its own, and in reality, uh, it, it was built to, to stand together. Uh, the book was written to, to flow, you know, so we're going to have to, as we go through it, not today, but as we go through the study, there will be times that I'll cover whole chapters um, at one time. We'll see how that goes, but we'll at least have to, you know, we'll have to somehow try to seg- segue them all together, but um, today we're going to continue in our series entitled Creating a Gospel-Centric Culture. Now, we've tried to do this from the inception of, of the church. Uh, we've really tried to, to intentionally um, create a culture that, that is centered um, and revolves around the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which in essence means we, we, we've tried to create a, a Jesus-centered culture. Jesus is the gospel, and we mentioned that last week. You can't separate Christ from the gospel. When you talk about the good news of God's amazing grace, the good news of God's amazing grace is that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Jesus is the gospel. He's the person of the gospel. He's the embodiment of the gospel. And that's why he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not part of the gospel. He's not part of the way to heaven. We're not climbing a stairway uh, that has Jesus along the path. We are on our way to heaven if we're saved because of Jesus Christ. And so we want to create a gospel, or we, rather we want to create a, a culture around that. And so I'll talk to you more about what we mean uh, along those lines in just a moment. But look with me in Romans chapter 1, verse number 1. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. It's easy to identify Paul's writings because every one of Paul's letters begin with his name. And that wasn't egocentric. Uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and God inspired him to do that. God does build um, his kingdom around spokesmen. If you look all throughout the Old Testament, he used the prophets, he used Moses, uh, he used the times of the kings to lead his people. And so Paul is really the spokesman to what we understand to be the church age. God gave him uh, the burden, God called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles, that's us. And so in verse number 2, he goes on talking about the gospel. He said in verse 1, he was separated to the gospel. Verse 2, he elaborates and says, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So here again is why we say that Jesus is the gospel. Paul mentions the gospel in verse 1. He said it's what he was separated unto. And then he explains the gospel by explaining Jesus, that Jesus is the only begotten son of God. And verse 3 says all the, the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament writings were written concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. He was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we've received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. 
to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we find in verses 1 through 7, Paul's just sort of introducing the, the, himself, and then he's introducing the content of the writing, the purpose of the writing of the book of Romans. Paul had not yet been to Rome, as he indicates here. Uh, most believe that he was writing from Corinth and, and had this letter delivered to the believers in Rome. And Paul would eventually wind up there, not probably the way he planned to travel. Uh, he, he wound up in Rome as a prisoner. It's not how I usually plan my travels, right? I'm not, I'm not flying co- uh, first class, but I'd like to at least be coach. Well, Paul was in the belly of a ship as a prisoner when he got to Rome. Nevertheless, God allowed him to go there and minister to the believers in Rome. Verse number 8, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for y'all that your faith is spoken. We discussed the pronunciation of that last week, just so y'all know how to pronounce it. Uh, he says that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. That without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and unwise. So as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to gather together. Lord, we pray that you would give us a liberty in your spirit to understand and see the truth of your word. I pray that you'd unveil any blindness from our hearts and minds, I pray that God today, we could, we could see Jesus revealed in scripture. I pray that we could see our own needs. Father, I pray that you'd lay out the path plainly in front of us. God, direct our steps today, work in every heart. Each person has a unique need. They come from a unique place. And so, Father, I pray that you'd speak to them and bless them today. Lord, give me wisdom to articulate your word. I pray that you'd give me grace to speak in such a way that we could comprehend. In Jesus' name, amen. So if we're going to create a gospel-centered culture, we have to identify what the gospel is. We talked about this just a little bit last week, um, but, but if we identify the gospel, we understand that according to the scriptures, the gospel is the gift of eternal life through the sacrificial death, life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read that again since you stuttered just a little bit the first time. The gospel itself is the gift of eternal life through the sacrificial life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. All three of those points are vital because we're saved, the Bible says, by his life. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, which none of us will ever do, by the way. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. 
He fulfilled every aspect, every element of the law. We're going to talk a lot about the law in the book of Romans, by the way. But in his life, Jesus fulfilled all works of righteousness. He did everything perfect. He was perfectly God, and he was perfectly man, and he fulfilled the whole counsel of God. So we are saved by the life of Christ, we're saved by the death of Christ, and we're saved by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. The gospel is encapsulated in verses like John chapter 3 and verse number 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. I heard someone say the other day if God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, I highly doubt that God sent you into the world to condemn it. Amen. The gospel is that Christ lived a perfect life, that he died a sacrificial or what we call a vicarious death, and he was bodily resurrected from the dead after three days and three nights. So when we talk about the gospel, we understand that the gospel is not a religion. The gospel is not a recitation. It's not repeating a prayer after somebody. The gospel is not a reward for our, uh, for our good deeds, or, nor is it a retribution for our bad deeds. The gospel is Jesus Christ plus nothing and minus nothing. And so I said this to you last week, and I, I hope you understand the gravity of this statement, but I, I said last week that the only real question when it comes to the controversy over the salvation of a human soul is are we saved by God's grace or are we saved by works? That is the only question. Don't let anybody confuse you with other questions. So when it comes to the controversy, and how many of y'all know there's a controversy about the gospel? There has been since the birth of the gospel. The Jews were controversial toward Christ because Christ came to them and said things like, you know, you're not right in God's eyes because you keep the law. You're not right in God's eyes because you're a Jew. You're not right in God's eyes because you've been circumcised. You're not right in God's eyes because you keep the Sabbath or the holy days. Jesus came explaining to them that there was only one way to be reconciled in the eyes of God, and that was through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, which was Jesus himself. And so don't ever let anybody confuse you with other questions. The question is not, can you lose your salvation? That's the wrong question. The question is not, can you forfeit your salvation? That's the wrong question. The question is not, do you have to be baptized to go to heaven or keep sacraments or go to church or have your name on a church roll? Those are all the wrong questions. The right question and the only right question is, are we saved by the grace of God or are we saved by our own works? That's the question. And the controversy of the gospel, that's the dividing line. And Paul goes on to say, I hate to spoil the book, but Paul goes on to say later, and he comes to this conclusion, and I've quoted, quoted it to you often, but, but understand as we build this up, as we walk through the book of Romans, uh, we're going to build up to the point where Paul said, if it's by grace, then it can't be of works. That's the, that's the essential conclusion. If it's by grace, if we're saved by grace, if we're born again into the family of God by grace, if we're made right in the eyes of God by grace, if we're going to heaven by grace, then it can't have anything to do with our own works. Now, saving grace will produce good works in a person's life. Being born again will change a person's heart. Having been filled by the Holy Spirit at the moment of redemption, when you trust Jesus as your Savior, you'll never be the same again because if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, and behold, all things are become new. But we get the cart before the horse when we say a person has to do X, Y, Z to go to heaven. The only thing a person has to do to go to heaven is put their faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross for them. 
You're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. And it's not of works lest any man should boast. Now please don't come to me and quote verses out of context because I know the verses just as well as you do. But you're pulling them out of context and anything taken out of context is a pretext which means it becomes a false notion. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Should a person get baptized? Absolutely. And shame on you if you've been saved but you've never followed Christ in baptism. You should be baptized. 100% you ought to be baptized. You should identify with him. Paul's going to deal with baptism in the book of Romans. But baptism doesn't save you. All right. Now that I've ticked half the crowd off, (laughs) I'm just teasing. I know everyone agrees with me all the time. But the reality is the question is not are we saved by grace or saved by works. The question is are we saved by grace or saved by works. You can't mingle the two of them together. They don't fit. They don't go together. Grace is the opposite of works. Do you understand that? It's the exact op- It's like saying light and darkness. They are the exact opposite. You can't commingle the two. Saving grace is our only hope to see heaven one day. And so when we talk about the gospel, we, 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 we try to, we're trying to create a gospel-centered culture. Okay. So how does a church or how should a church be affected by the gospel, or, or maybe I should say it this way, how should the gospel affect the culture of a church? Because let's face it, every church has its own culture, right? Every church has its own culture. You develop this sort of community, which is a good thing. But, but the question is, how does or how should the gospel affect the culture of a church? And I'm going to say something, and, and I think you're probably going to be surprised to find out what I'm about to tell you. But, but I have some pretty big opinions when it comes to church culture. And that's probably shocking. But I do have some big opinions when it comes to church culture. And I'm going to make a statement. It's, it's a broad-brushing statement, and I'm fully aware of that, and I thought about it. I thought about it so much, I wrote it, I wrote it in my notes. So this isn't an off-the-cuff statement, as much of what I'll say the rest of the time will be. All right? But I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely convinced that church culture has, has been off for a very long time. I really am. Uh, especially here in America. I'm genuinely convinced that church culture has been, has been off. It's been wrong for a very long time. Now, now, let me qualify that by saying not in every way. I believe the structure itself is good, right? If you've ever remodeled a house, if, you, if you're buying a fixer-upper, you always want to look at the bones of the house, Right? You heard that statement? If the bones are good, you can, you can rehab the rest. Everything else, the foundation's fine, the, the framing's good, like all those things are good, just cosmetic stuff. And all I'm saying are the cosmetic things, right? I believe the structure of the church is good. It's been good. Jesus said the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. And so when we're talking about the bones of the, of the structure, I believe the bones are good. But we've allowed issues, we've allowed preferences, we've allowed traditions, we've allowed pet doctrines to take center stage and overshadow the gospel, and that is not good. I mentioned to you last week, and again, some of y'all bowed up on me. I thought I was going to fight my way out of church, which I wouldn't want to have to do that. Because at 33 years old, it hurts to get in a fight these days. Y'all know what I'm saying? Certainly at 43, geez Louise. But... uh. I said this last week, but it's just a true statement. Most Christians, most churchgoers would be more upset if you said something negative about Donald Trump than if you said something negative about the gospel. That's a shame. 
It's a shame that we get more up in arms about a political party or a political position where if you want my two cents, I think they're pulling both sides of the string. But that's another sermon for another time. You don't want to hear my conspiracy theories, guys. <laughs> I'm just saying. It's a sad day in, 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 in the church when, when the people of God, now think about this. I'm not saying other issues aren't important, and I, and I qualified last week by saying being a Christian ought to affect the way you view the world. It ought to affect the way you vote. It ought to affect everything about you. But, but ultimately and primarily, it ought to affect the way that we love people. And when we allow other issues to trump the gospel, when we let other things, even pet doctrines, I'm saying even sometimes we take things from the Bible and beat people over the head with it, when in reality, they don't need a sword, they need a band-aid to help them heal, and yet we're trying to tear them down when, when God's doing a work of grace in their lives. So, so let me give you a few examples of what I mean, okay? Here's what I mean by, 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 by how I think church culture has adversely affected the pe people's view of church, right? Now, okay, Mike mentioned this a minute ago. I heard somewhere, somebody told me that there's a football game tonight. Is that true? I heard Mike say that in my ears as I was walking around. There's a football game tonight, right? Maybe not. Okay. Well, one of the big things around the Super Bowl, as you know, is always the, uh, the commercials. In fact, if I were to make a confession... I know, some of y'all are going to hate me now. The only reason I watch the Super Bowl is for the commercials. Okay? Y'all pray for me. See? You're getting all upset. You're getting, you ain't got upset about a daggum thing I said up until this point. Now you go, you don't like football! Don't you know the Chiefs are playing? Aren't you, aren't you from Missouri? I am. And I'm rooting for the Chiefs. Okay? And we got that out of the way. But, but the big controversy this year, I don't know if you've seen it, um, but the big controversy this year is, is that there is a, a commercial um, about Jesus that they're calling Jesus Gets Us. Have you seen this? Man, it stirred up, I mean, it stirred up a hornet's nest uh, among a, a lot of people. And I won't name the demographic, right? But people are losing their minds over it. They're freaking out over this commercial that has to do with Jesus. Now, now, and they're saying things like, well, we're tired of you Christians shoving your beliefs down our throats. Well, but here's the thing. There are a thousand other commercials out there promoting all kinds of religions, all kinds of philosophies. Nobody loses their mind over that. Nobody loses their mind if you say Buddha or Muhammad or, or you mention Hinduism or Daoism or any other ism in the world, but you mention Jesus and they freak out. They do. You can promote anything. You can promote all kinds of immorality. You can promote all kinds of just, just lewd behavior. Nobody says a word, but you mention Jesus, and the world loses their minds. But there, there are two main reasons for that, in my opinion. Now, again, just, I'm just, just being honest. The introduction to this is mostly my opinion. It's pretty well-founded, but it's a lot of opinion, so just, just deal with it for a second. But here's why I believe that is. I believe there are two main reasons why, why essentially the world goes nuts when, when we promote Jesus. Number one, one possibility is they just straight up hate the idea of God in general. They don't like the idea of there being a creator. So we'll, we'll just erase it. We'll just, we'll just annihilate the idea that there's a God that made us, therefore we don't have to answer to him. Right? Now I told you this is opinion, but it's well-founded opinion. Look at verse number 18. He says, for the wrath of God 
is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifested in them for God has shown it to them. I'm thoroughly convinced that there is no such thing as, an, as a complete atheist. I don't believe anybody really deep down in their heart of hearts can believe there's no God. I just don't believe it. You say, well, why is that? Well, because I don't believe in them. That means they don't exist. Simple math. Okay? I, just, I don't believe it. I don't believe they exist. Therefore, they're not there. But the reality is the Bible tells us that every person inherent to the human soul has a, a, just at least a general knowledge of God. That there's this, this what we call general revelation, that they have a general concept of the, of, the, of the presence of God. Now this is what James was referring to when he said even the devils believe and tremble. That's, that's not a saving knowledge, but it is just a common knowledge, just a general revelation of the existence of God. It says in verse 19, what may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. So reason number one, why the world would lose its mind over anything pertaining to the Lord Jesus Christ, is just simply that they, they hate the idea of God completely. They just, they just reject any idea that there is a God out there. Okay? And we're getting to some ma the manifestations of that in the latter part of, part of Romans chapter number 1. And, and the truth of the matter is, some people just don't, you talk to them about God, they don't want to hear it. Right? You try to have a conversation with some, some people about God and they, they just reject it. They'll close their ears, they can talk about fishing, hunting, baseball, football, basketball, things that ladies talk about. You fill in the blank, I need your help there. Talk about that stuff. They'll talk about anything, the weather, politics, they'll talk about anything, but you bring God into the conversation and they'll shut you down. That's just a reality. But I'm not preaching to them today. So reason number two, that I believe people wholesale just, just get tired of, of having Jesus thrown up in their face is number two, they've been, they've been presented a false image of Christianity. They have been presented a false image of Christianity. They have been sold a false bill of goods, a false representation, a misrepresentation of what Christianity is supposed to look like. Most people that don't want to come to church are not those people. For the most part, I'm talking about in areas like this. I'm not a city boy. I'll always be a country boy. I don't understand city culture. Don't want to. All right? But, but, but I understand in rural communities, for the most part, People who don't go to church don't reject church because they hate God or don't want to know about God. They reject church because their identity with church, the way that they sort of think about church is, is well, you know, church people are gossips, they're hypocrites, they're this and that. And the truth is we are, right? Let's just be honest. The truth is we're all flawed. We all have problems, and the only difference is in church, we make a little list, and, and we, 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 as long as we can check that list off, we feel like we're right in the eyes of God. All the while churches are eaten up, I hate to tell you this, but churches are eaten up with immorality. Churches are ate up with backbiting. 
with, with, with discord, with, with disloyalty, people talking nice to your face. This is one of the things I hate worse than anything. Talk nice to your face, then stab you in the back. Look, don't, don't be my frenemy. I'd rather you be a straight-up enemy to me. And I think any honest person would. But that's just a reality. Churches have, have, have th- this cancer has grown inside churches, and the enemy has sown that seed there because through that, the devil has effectively been able to, to present this imagery of Christianity that is so far from what Jesus originally intended for his people that the world says, you know, I'm sick of hearing you Christians scream and yell at me about my sin when you've got plenty of sin on your own plate to deal with. See, I don't think it's real helpful for us as Christians to stand on the street corners with signs screaming in people's faces, turn or burn, repent or perish. Amen. I don't think that's the most effective way to reach people. I don't think the most effective way to reach people is to stick our bony fingers in their nose and tell them everything that we disagree with. If I got to know you well enough and you got to know me well enough, I promise we could spend all day pointing out things we disagree with in each other. That doesn't make you spiritual. And so here's my point. There is nothing we can do about the first one. People who just reject God because they're going to reject God, people who just hate the idea of God, I can't change them. What I can change is I can do something about the second one. We can do something. You say, well, I can't change the way people perceive church. Well, then who's going to? Now listen to what the Bible says. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 34, he said, awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Chew on that for a second. Paul said there are people out there who don't have a knowledge of God. There are people out there who don't know Christ like you do. There are people out there who have never come to this moment of saving grace, and and he was writing to the Corinthian church, which is one of the most jacked up churches in the Bible. The church in Corinth had a lot of problems, and I don't even have time today. If I started trying to list the problems in the Corinthian church today, I wouldn't even get to my sermon. And I got to give you something besides opinion, right? So, So here's the point. Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, there are people out there who don't know God. Now, there, some of them, there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing. That's on them. They've, they've turned themselves over to this, to this concept that there's no God. They want to live like there's no God. They don't care if there's a God. You can't change them. But there is something you can do for those who are seeking. There is something you can do for those who are lost. And he said, he said there is an element of society that doesn't have the knowledge of God. And in that crowd, I'm telling you, it, it's your fault as a whole, not individually, but as a whole to the church, he said, look, they don't want to know God because you have projected to them a false image of God. You've made them think that God is some judgmental, hateful mongrel that's just breathing out threatenings and and slaughter and just wants to throw people in hell and beat them over the head every time they step out of line. That is such a false image of God, and I think I read somewhere that you're not supposed to create any graven image of him. You're not supposed to use this name in vain, and I'm telling you, churches have used the name of God in vain for a very long time. They've put God's name on things that God never approved of. And so, church culture ought to be different. Church culture should be a culture that moves in the the miscuit 
of love for Jesus and our fellow man. Y'all remember that uh, in school they taught us about that little sideways eight? Remember what I'm talking about? It's supposed to represent infinity. So imagine that. If I had a whiteboard, I'd draw on it, but I'm not that refined yet. But imagine that little sideways eight representing infinity and put Jesus on one side and put community on the other side, and that's what church really is. It's, it's a reciprocation. It's a constant moving of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ and our love for people, which is why when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment in the law was, he said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, and that should be the definition of church community. Loving God and loving people in this constant cycle that moves back and forth, you can't love God and hate people at the same time. It's not possible. I'm just telling you, it's not even possible to love God and hate people. Church community ought to be a culture of love for Jesus and a culture of love for people. So let me break this down for you in three ways. Three elements that ought to define church culture, okay? Opinions are over. Now it's time for Bible preaching. Y'all ready? So three elements that ought to define church culture. Number one, church culture ought to be a culture of worship. Amen. Church culture. We need a bigger building if for no other reason we can put the nursery on the other side of it. But church culture ought to be a culture of worship. Now let me say something about worship. Worship is an attitude. I know that's not the first thing you think about when you hear the word. When, when we hear the word worship, we think of other things. And, and, and I will say that, that worship uh, often involves action and often uh, many times within worship, uh, it's emotional and there, there's verbal expression, but those things are the outflow of worship. True worship in and of itself is an internal disposition. So when we think about worship, to define the word, you find that the word worship means to prostrate oneself, to bow down. That's what worship means. It, 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 that could certainly mean an outward physical sense of bowing down. That could certainly mean an outward physical sense of laying prostrate. But ultimately, it's much deeper. All the outward things that you think about in reference to worship are manifestations of worship. But true worship is something that takes place within the heart. It's a bowing down. It's a, it's a humility of mind. It's a disposition of adoration toward God. And yet we've come to define worship as music. That's what when you think of worship. Well, I'm going to worship. We're, what we mean is we're going to go listen to some music. And we might sing if they sing our favorite song. That's how we think. When we define worship, if, you just, if I just threw that out there and said, somebody tell me what worship is. You say, well, worship is what we did a little bit ago. Well, I hope it was. But this stuff by itself isn't worship. Music, instruments, song, lyrics alone do not define worship, but that's how we've, we, it's how we've come to define it. And, and certainly there are songs that are worshipful in nature, but music itself doesn't worship God. Did you know that? Music itself does not worship God. Music is amoral. It doesn't possess the ability to worship God. Music is an inanimate tool, a vessel that we can use for worship, but music alone isn't worship. 
And I would go so far as to say that within church culture, we've downgraded worship. We've downgraded it to a particular style. We've downgraded it to a preferred genre. We've downgraded it. And unfortunately, we have postured our preferences to the point that now we worship worship. Now we worship a worship style. Now we worship a worship leader. Now we worship a certain type of song. It's not worship unless we are bowing our hearts in awe of the presence of a thrice holy God and lifting his name on high. It's not about your preferred style. But we worship the style now. Churches split over the style of worship. They do. Churches split over the style of worship. Now, I'm for doing it well. Look, I don't think there's anything spiritual about a, a, a worship team or a person getting up and not really having a clue where they're going or knowing what they're doing. I think you ought to worship and do things with excellence. I think everything we do, God deserves our very best. There's nothing spiritual about being sloppy. There's nothing spiritual about being haphazard. Just getting up, well, I think today, guys, will. uh, you know, I reckon, uh, who's got a song they want to sing? Now, if that's all you got, listen, I've been in some amazing worship services that there were, were the most scaled down, most basic thing you've ever seen before, right? And if that's all you've got, then God will bless it and good on you. But if we act that way toward worship just because we're lazy and we don't want to put the time in, that's a problem. That's a problem. However... Just because you have a good worship team doesn't mean you have good worship. Because we don't worship the worship team. We don't worship the style. We don't worship the genre. We don't worship just because it's my favorite song today. Oh, I love that song. I love that you love songs. I love songs too. Music is probably my greatest passion second to the word of God. But when we, when we worship the style and we worship the singer and we worship our preferences, we are not worshiping. Worship is an attitude of the heart. Now listen to what David said in Psalm 100 in verse number one. He said, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all ye lands. You know what I love about music? One thing I love about music is that every song has four parts. Did you know that? Every song has four parts. Am I right? Thanks. When it comes to the vocals, you can sing lead, you can sing the high parts, you can sing the, the mid-high part. Anyway, I won't break it all down. But if you hear a choir, you've got the bass section, you've got the lead section, which is singing the melody, you've got the, if you've got women in the choir, you've got sopranos and altos, if you've got an all-male choir, then you've got your baritones and your tenors, your bass, the real men. Hey, don't get offended if it's true. <laughs> but but you know what's what's beautiful to me about that is that everybody has a part. See, I th I feel like uh I feel like I'm a I'm a tenor trapped in a bass singer's body. Don't ever watch me do this, but every now and then Blake will be hitting some of them high notes and I'm back there away from the mic strategically. Hitting them with him. And then I got to come forward. Tenor is just so much more expressive. The high part is so much more expressive. The low part you expect to see like a basset hound singing the low part. And I'm all like, ha! I... It's kind of a buzzkill for me. But anyway, that's just an internal struggle that I deal with. Y'all don't have to know about all that. 
But it says make a joyful shout or make a joyful noise to the Lord. Everybody can do that. You can't sing high, you can sing low, you can find something in the middle and it don't even have to be on key, it just says make a noise, <laughs> right? Everybody can make some noise. Yeah. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. He said we ought to be entering the doors with thanksgiving. Now here's what, again, here's what we do. And I say we, including me. We wait until the music begins and hope that somehow our hearts get stirred up in such a way that maybe it elicits some sort of emotion inside of us. And we call that worship. Well, well, if that were worship, then, then anything essentially could stir worship because then by definition, anything that moves us emotionally would be defined as worship. Worship is a recognition of who he is in relationship to who we are. Worship is a recognition and an acknowledgement of the fact that every good thing in my life has descended to me from the hand of God. Every blessing in my life has been a gift to me from God's good hand. It's not me, it's He, and we come into His presence with thanksgiving, and we enter into His courts with praise. Now, when I think about this, when I think about how this relationship works in the church, I, I start to get a foreshadow and vision of, of our heavenly gathering one day. Everybody loves the book of Revelation, right? If I just took a survey, what book you want to hear me teach on next? Everybody say, Revelation. Well, too bad. <laughs> we ain't getting there for a while. But, unless you come on Wednesday night. Hint, hint. Uh, but when we look, look to the book of Revelation, I always say I understand the first four chapters of the, la of the book of Revelation, and I understand the last three chapters of the book of Revelation, right? It's all that confusing stuff in between that we debate over. But here's one thing I understand. In Revelation chapter number 4, verse, verse 1, the Bible says that, that, that John got a vision of heaven. And John said in, in Revelation chapter 4, 1, he said, I, I looked and behold, a door was open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was that of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither, and I'll show you things which must be, which must be hereafter. And the very first thing that John said he saw in heaven was a throne. And he said, I saw one seated on the throne whose, whose feet looked like they burned in a furnace of fire and his, and his eyes uh, uh, were like a flame and his heart uh, beat there in all of his glory and all of his majesty and all of his beauty. John said, the first thing I saw was the Lamb of God seated on the throne as King of kings and Lord of lords. And then if you keep reading on in chapter 4, he begins to see that he's not alone. And there's a crowd gathered around the throne with him, and they're singing a song. If you don't like songs that are repetitious, you're not going to like heaven a whole lot. Because the song that they're singing around the throne in heaven is worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. What do we see? We see this community that's centered around the person of the gospel. And this community that's not bickering over preferences and styles and culture and whether you should have lights on the stage or 
you should dress in a suit to go to church. They're not arguing about that. In fact, if you want to dress right, get a robe and some sandals. There you go. You're welcome. See you next Sunday. The point is, real worship is a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's setting everything else aside and fixating our hearts on Him and realizing that He is the centerpiece of all that we do. He's the person of the gospel. We're saved by His grace. We're saved by His goodness. We're saved by His life. We're saved by His sacrifice. It's His resurrection that gives us power to live the life of a Christian. And He's the center of all that we do. It's a culture of worship. Number two, creating a gospel-centric culture ought to be a culture of reconciliation. Now, now, this has everything, what I'm about to say, has everything to do with the way that we look at people who walk through the doors of a church. Make no mistake about it, we exist to lift up the name of the Lord Jesus, but we also exist to lift up the ones Jesus died to save. Remember that sideways eight? Am I know the right word for that? What is it? No, that's not the right word for it. There's a word for that little sideways eight. I know it represents infinity. Sorry to put you all on the spot. Anyway, don't matter. Don't matter. Just a little sidetrack in my brain, okay? But that little sideways infinity with Jesus on one side and community on the other, we ought to love every person that walks through the doors of this church. And so, so creating a gospel-centric culture means that we have a culture of rec- reconciliation which means no matter how they look, no matter where they've come from, no matter what we might know about their history, they're welcome here. They're welcome here. Matter of fact, when we first bought this building and when we got ready to move into it, we were putting the, the, the stickers and the, the signage and all that stuff out there and I had, them, I had them put on the front door, you, big letters, you are welcome here. I like that, but I almost wish I would have put, had them put on there, you are wanted here. Because you're not just welcome, you're wanted. We want you. Certainly welcome, but it's more than that. We want you here, no matter what your background is, no matter how far you've fallen, you are wanted in this place because guess what? We're all screwed up too. (laughs) And I've got news for you. Every other church on the planet, I don't care how big their steeple is, is full of jacked up people just like us. They can paint it, they can cover it, they can dress it up. Look, you can put lipstick on a pig all you want, it's still a pig. We're all jacked up, we've all got problems, we may present them better. We might have more socially acceptable sins than others, but the fact is we're all sinners, we're all messed up, we all have issues, and so we have zero right to look down our nose at somebody else. And so we ought to be developing and creating and cultivating a culture of reconciliation whereby we want to bring people into a right relationship with God, no matter where they come from or how they vote or what they do. (laughs) Oh, don't you hate losing stuff? I hate losing things. I lost my favorite pair of sunglasses. Now, I've got two pairs of sunglasses. I got the sunglasses that I chop wood in, and then I got the sunglasses that I wear to look cool. I lost my cool sunglasses the other day. Man, I was ticked off. But I, just, I hate losing stuff. 
And you know, when something's lost, we, we often look for it in all the wrong places. I can't even tell you. I looked everywhere. I did. I drove up here. I thought I left him in my office. I, I ran all over, looked all over the house, upstairs, downstairs, kids' rooms, figured they jacked them or something. Looked everywhere for them. And we look for things in all the wrong places, and it's aggravating. Because all those wrong places feel like a waste of time until we realize that looking in the wrong place is part of the process. It's a process of elimination that leads to the right place. So understand that every person who walks in this place is at a different point in the process. And what I'm trying to tell you is we got to stop trying to poach people in the process. We think it's our job to step in and get them where we want them to be. Listen, you have no idea where people are coming from and what God's been doing in their hearts to get them to this point. They may be a million miles from where you think they should be, but you can't see that they're already a million miles from where they used to be. Leave them alone. Because you ain't got there yet either. We're trying to, we're trying to poach people and pull them out of the process when God sometimes has to take them on that journey. And it's a process of elimination and they look here and they realize that's left them empty. And they look over here and they try this and realize, man, that relationship failed too. And they try this religion and that religion failed. And they try this method and that method failed. And they try this philosophy and that philosophy failed. And sometimes as Christians, and sometimes it comes from a good place. We really want to see them saved and we want to really see their lives reconciled. And we ought to do our best to share the light of the gospel with them. But sometimes we just need to step back and let God do his work because it's the goodness of God that's already at work to lead them to a place of repentance. And you're not the Holy Ghost last time I checked we got to stop trying to poach people in the process and let God do the work to bring them in you say well I just don't think they ought to be doing that well fine leave them alone you don't have to like it last time I checked you weren't the Lord last time I checked God didn't ask your opinion am I right I'm surprised you didn't amen that a little bit some of you look shocked God's not, listen, God uses us, and when you have the opportunity to share truth with people, you ought to, but stop thinking it's your job to correct the way people look, the way people act, the way people vote, what they smoke, wait, <laughs> Freudian slip, it's not your job, it ain't your job. There's a process when, when something lost is being sought out. And sometimes people have to find all the wrong things before they finally arrive at the right thing. But when they find it, they realize that was what they'd look for the entire time. We got to go. Ready? It's a culture of reconciliation. Last thing, I got to give you this. Church culture, a, a, a culture that's centered upon the gospel of Jesus Christ ought to be a culture of truth. Now, here's the difficult thing. I hear this often. I haven't searched for a church in several, several years, but the thing I hear the most when somebody moves away or they're looking for a church in another area, the difficulty in finding a good church is that, is that so often when you walk into to a church that's loving, a church that's gracious, a church that's kind to everyone, they sacrifice truth on the altar of acceptance. You can find a church that's, that's welcoming, sometimes in a, in a creepy way. Like they haven't seen another human being in years. That's always weird. You walk into a place and 15 people flock to you. <laughs> Hi, haven't seen you here before. 
You want to fill out this card? I already got your name on it. How'd you know my name? Don't worry about that. <laughs> just fill out this card. We just want your name, your address, your phone number, social security number, bank routing number right here. Do you belong to a church? You know? But you can find churches not that, that aren't weird like that, but you can find churches that are that are welcoming. They've got a warm environment. When you walk in, people are happy to see you. You know, Norm, remember that? The old Cheers theme songs play, and everybody's just happy you're there. But oftentimes, here's the danger. Oftentimes, when you find some place that has, has that sort of culture, they, they have done that at the expense of ever preaching things that are uncomfortable. They've sacrificed truth on the altar of acceptance, and they, and they, wouldn't, they, they won't preach things that, that are very scriptural, that are very much so prevalent in the Word of God. They won't preach certain things, even to the point, I'm not going to call names because it's Sunday morning, I'll call names on Wednesday night, again, another good reason to come to Wednesday night Bible study, but, but, but you can look up some of the most prevalent preachers in America nowadays, and some of them who claim to believe the Bible and claim to believe in Jesus Christ have gotten on, on public Air, I'm talking about on news networks and denied that Jesus is the only hope of the gospel. Now they smile a lot and they can tell you how to live your best life with Botox and teeth whitening. But then deny that Jesus is the gospel. You understand where I'm going? So you can find welcoming environments that have sacrificed truth but on the other hand, when you're looking for a church, if you're church shopping, I hope you're not, but if you're church shopping, on the other hand, when you find a church that preaches and teaches truth, they do so at the expense of love, grace, and mercy. It's like if you have one, you can't have the other. A church that really takes a strong stand for truth is often very ego-driven, very prideful, very arrogant, very judgmental. And I'll say it to you this way, there are a lot of them out there, they're so right, they're wrong. The Pharisees were right about a lot of things. Jesus said to the Pharisees one day, he said, I appreciate that you're meticulous to tithe every little red cent, you're, you're, you're on the dime with 10% of all of your increase, but you've omitted the greater matters of the law, love, mercy, forgiveness, he said, these ought you to have done. It's not wrong that you're doing right, but, you, but you, you think you're so right. You're so square on everything else that you forgot how to love people. You forgot where you came from. You forgot that one day you were that person that had hit rock bottom and needed somebody to reach down. So, so we can't sacrifice truth on the altar of acceptance, but we can't sacrifice acceptance and love and mercy on the altar of truth either. Because again, if we're creating a gospel-centric culture, we're creating a Jesus-centric culture. And here's one of the most fundamental truths we understand about Jesus Christ himself. John chapter 1 verse 15 says that Jesus was the perfect epitome, the perfect balance of grace and truth. The perfect balance of grace and truth. You say, well, how do I love somebody that I disagree with? That's the only time you really do start loving the way Jesus loved. When you can look past your disagreements and love somebody genuinely, genuinely love somebody that you fundamentally disagree with, 
That's when love begins. That's, that's God's love. Because the, because the definition of God's love is found in the book of Romans that says, you know, some might give their lives for a good person. Some might sacrifice for good people, for righteous people. But God gave his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God is looking past people's faults, looking beyond our disagreements with certain people's lifestyles and the things that they do. It's looking beyond that and loving them anyway and, and not even mentioning the disagreement. Sometimes we think that somehow to stay right with God, we've got to let everybody know what we disagree with in them. Like you're the harbinger of truth. You're the defender of all things right, and God has commissioned you to go and tell the whole world everything they're doing wrong. Wrong. God's commissioned you to go and tell the whole world everything he's done right in giving his son to bring us into relationship with him. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he resurrected from the dead. That's great news. That's great news. And if we're going to create a culture, if we're going to maintain, I think we've, by God's grace, have created that, but if we're going to maintain a gospel-centered culture, it takes work, it takes focus, it takes grace. It takes worship because in worship we're bowing down and realizing I'm here not because of me, I'm here because of him. It's all because of Jesus that I'm even alive and have the privilege of lifting my voice in praise and lifting my voice in prayer. It's God's grace that's put me where I am and it's God's grace that'll keep me where I am and if we'll keep that humility of heart and mind we'll be able to love people right you say well don't you know what they do I don't care you're looking at the face of somebody who just doesn't care I don't need to hear their story unless they're endangering a child or someone innocent I don't need to hear the story y'all hear me only person ought to be nervous to walk in here if somebody wants to hurt a kid be nervous if that's you you're in the wrong place to do that Hoss but I don't need to know your background. I'll be glad to listen if you need somebody to talk to. But I don't need to know your history to love you or accept you. You're accepted in the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he's done. If it were up to me or up to you, we'd all be messed up. We'd all be hopelessly lost, but because of Christ, we can be found, saved and forgiven, made right in God's eyes. Let's stand together today. Father, thank you so much. For your mercy, God, thank you for your goodness. I pray that you'd bless now as we take a moment to reflect in song, Lord, as we pray, as we maybe get some things even right in our own hearts. I pray that you'd work. Lord, if there's someone here today who doesn't know Christ as his or her Savior, my prayer is that today would be the day that they would turn to you and trust in you for eternal life. In Jesus' name.